Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose podcast. Um, do not adjust your channel and do not uh, don't don't hit pause. You're you're on the right podcast. This is just uh, your one of your co-hosts, Brett Jones, kicking things off today. And I am here as always with my good friend Mike Perry. Mike, how you doing up there in the Boston area? Pretty good. Hey, not bad for your first time doing our intro. Um, you know, we'll, we'll review and I'll give you some pointers in a little bit, but um, you know what? You you do all right in front of the mic. Uh, you should maybe get into maybe lecturing, presenting, speaking. I'm just throwing it out there. Um, Excellent. Not I'll, too, I'll too bad. Under advice. Thank you, sir. And, uh, Thank you, sir. I threw Brett uh, under the bus like right before we decided to uh, start the record <laughs> button. I said, why don't you do the intro? So I, uh, I, I surprised him and he did a fantastic job, but there's a reason why um i wanted him to start off because the topic today is is dun 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 the clean and press or I overhead like pressing um you know it's it's interesting prior to um really developing the the iron cardio sequence and and you know spending the last two and a half years uh doing a lot of clean and press and squat um and and more pressing volume in the last two two and a half years than i had done in the uh 19 years of kettlebell lifting prior to that um so i mean i've obviously i've been pressing during the the 19 some odd years that prior to you know starting really down the iron cardio path but um you know recently obviously a lot of volume you know getting some sessions in where it's 80, 90, 120 some odd presses in a single session. Um, and that's just one of the sessions of the week. So, you know, accumulating a lot, my NL uh, number of lifts per month for overhead lifting, fairly significant. And so um, I've always had opinions uh, on the clean and press and overhead lifting. Now I have even more opinions, um, mostly solidified. So I, I think today is going to be interesting because, um, especially if you're more of a kettlebell person, um, you're doing stuff overhead. We clean, repress, we snatch, get ups, windmills. You know, there's a lot that we do uh, in the overhead position. Uh, being able to go there effectively um, really matters. I, one of the things I want to di dive down today is really talk about some individual differences, um, both you know structural and um, maybe injury history wise that influence how you're going to go overhead. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to kind of get, getting getting down this a little bit. And I was working with one of my students just the other day on on their kettlebell press, and there were some things that came up that I think you know this is it's kind of weird that we ended up on this topic for today because uh, it's kind of timely um, in working with my students and and things like that. Um, and I you know even though I didn't press to a high volume in the past, uh, I, I was a decently strong presser. I could usually hit the 40 on any given day, 36 or 40 on any given day, um, hit the beast tamer challenge back in 06. Um, so, you know, it's not that overhead pressing has been weak, uh, for me, but I've certainly done a lot more of it, uh, in the last uh, couple of years. And before we, we go much further or, and I just spend the whole, uh, podcast talking about myself, um, enough about me, Mike, what do you think about me? Um, I, uh, I, uh, it's a short, it's going to be a very do, short podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to flip this to Mike though, because, um, where, uh, I think you've had some shoulder, um, you've had a journey with overhead yes. pressing, uh, over the years, you have some type three acromiums. We'll talk about what that means here in a bit. 
but you you've got some structural and some things that you've had to work through over the years. So I know this is also a subject that's near dear uh, to your heart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'll be I'll be brutally honest. Um, I've screwed my shoulders up pretty good from doing too much too soon um, with crap technique. And honestly, it's I'm going to own it um, early on in my kettlebell career. Um, I, my goal was to do the beast tamer challenge and, um, I, I did a lot of pressing and I forced the adaptations. I didn't uh, allow them to happen, which actually they weren't adaptations. They were <laughs> me destroying my rotator cuff and, and, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of other stuff, but, uh, I'm a big fan of going overhead, a big fan of overhead pressing, but, uh, for someone like myself, um, I got a little too aggressive in the past trying to just focus on, in my case, it was the beast tamer challenge and I was training for it. And, um, I never accomplished it, but I, I did get to the point where I could press the 44 for a double. And for some reason that 48 just had my, uh, just had my number, uh, you know, I don't do a ton of overhead pressing, but the good thing is, is if I practice it quite a bit right now, I actually get right back to, you know, half body weight, probably within three to four weeks, which is, uh, kind of where I want to be. Um, but, um, for me, um, you know, I was, pretty much trying to max out every time I lifted and I was trying to hit a PR and, uh, I did make a lot of progress until I didn't. And then, you know, I started to have a bunch of shoulder pain and, um, you know, it, it was pretty nasty. Um, luckily I got a bunch of imaging and there wasn't really anything structurally. It was just, you know, rotator cuff tendonitis, just pissed off overuse. And I needed to rest, uh, ended up doing some cortisone shots here and there. Um, and that, you know, that actually, that helped. But with that being said, I'm not saying that I just got a couple injections and then I went back to doing what I did. I actually went and, uh, I got the injections changed my training pro program completely. And, and I, you know, I got a ton of, I got, I think six or seven years of, of no shoulder issues. So then I decided, Hey, why don't I, why don't I, uh, start jujitsu? Cause you know, your shoulders are doing fantastic. And uh, go ahead and start jujitsu. And um, I will say uh, the wear and tear from jujitsu has has pissed them off again. But you know, I'm starting to do the things that I want to do again. But um, with that being said, overhead pressing, you want to keep your overhead mobility and your overhead strength. It's super super important. And uh, I think the devil's in the dose. And I think you always want to play the long game when it comes to uh, when it comes to pressing. And if you are going to press heavy. Cool. Work up to that heavy press, earn that heavy press. Um, but I am a big fan, but yeah, I've, I've made, I've made my mistakes along the way and I've, I've been a moron doing it and, uh, literally have learned the hard way. Lessons learned hardest are learned best. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, um, beginning at the beginning, uh, which is always a good place to start. Um, it sounds like a, a show tune from uh, sound of music um the structural foundation right so t-spine's got to be mobile scapulas have got to be smart um you know you obviously want a healthy glenoid and, and uh you know all of those things the sc joint is probably what gets lost uh in the mix so if you kind of come up your sternum to the to the sternal notch and then go off just off to one side you're going to be on your sc joint mm -hmm. and that sc joint is actually it's a super cool joint because it's a saddle joint so you have this kind of cup this little c-shaped cup and the clavicle fits into the c-shaped cup and if you have your fingers on that sc joint and you kind of move your shoulder back and forth and up and down, you're going to feel there's a lot of motion happening there at that SC joint. This is the shoulders only bony attachment to your body. Everything else is muscle floating on muscle. Um, you follow that clavicle out to the acromion and where the spine of the scapula comes up and the acromion process is obviously another important joint, but that's not, it has no bony attachment to the body other than the SC joint. So the function and quality of movement at your SC joint is really important. So I had a car accident in the senior year of high school and uh, I was driving. And uh, so I had the seatbelt coming across. And so my left 
SC joint when I move it around and have my fingers on there. It's like a Jiffy Pop container on the uh, on the stove, um, except with less rhythm. Uh, I was going to say, I love so... that song. Big fan of that song. <laughs> so there's there's cracking and popping that goes on there. Whereas on my right, um, pretty smooth, um, you know, up and down, back and forth. But the gliding and the movement of that SC joint is super, super important. And we get bound into talking about what's happening at the glenoid or we'll talk scapular mechanics here in just a little bit. But that's dependent upon your SC joint doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So for all of you that have had a significant fall, a car accident, seatbelt, whether you were passenger or driver is going to matter because um, it goes over the opposite shoulder. And so that think back through your history, significant falls, car accidents, things of that nature that might have disturbed that SC joint, that's going to influence your overhead pressing. It's going to influence your clean and press. Um, obviously, T-spine mobility also influences overhead position a lot. And then having scapulas that are smart. We're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. But I want to highlight the SC joint here for just a minute uh, and maybe give it its first moment of popularity um, in po the podcasting world um, because it's a really important joint. And um, I have a very different path in my military press from right to left because of that. If I try to force my left shoulder to do what my right shoulder does naturally, I run into problems. Um, I have to allow my left shoulder to have its own groove. And that's because this SC joint moves just a little bit differently uh, than the right one does. So um, just want to give that its moment in the sun, uh, maybe get some people thinking about their histories. Uh, like I said, significant falls, car accident, things of that nature that may have, you know, not something that you're super aware of. Like, I don't remember having the car accident in high school and going, ah, my SC joint. Um, yeah. I just remember, you know, recovering from the car accident and, uh, you know, not thinking about it. Um, but years later in looking at it and feeling around, you know, it's uh, making all kinds of clicking and cracking. And uh, a while, a few, several years ago, it was hypo mobile. It definitely did not move as much as the right one. I've kind of brought that along. Um, so thoughts on the SC joint, Mike? I like it. I'm a big fan of the SC joint. No, I, I think uh, it's one of the joints is super complicated. And and when it does move, it's very, very small. Um, when when the clavicle moves, well, we'll talk about the clavicle for a second here. So, you know, the clavicle it indeed does move. It's just, it's not going to move like a shoulder moves. It, it, it can elevate, it can depress, it can rotate, but it's very, very minor. And um, you probably won't, know if you have anything going on with your SC joint until you have something going on with your SC joint, <laughs> because it's one of those things that kind of barks at you a little bit kind well, of you'll, too late. You'll, you'll, yeah. You'll feel it at the other end. Yeah. You'll, yeah. Exactly. You'll come up with, you'll come up with an irritated shoulder. Yeah, exactly. And you'll think, oh, what's wrong with my shoulder? Well, exactly. The and you're, you're, you're chasing the wrong, shoulders you're chasing only, the wrong attachment. Area. Yeah. So, it, yeah. you know, I think that's another thing too, is, is, um, you know, paying attention and that that's kind of, I know we didn't mean to go in that direction, but a lot of the times, like Brett said, it's like if you have, you know, some inflammation and that clavicle is elevated and then everything around there. Remember that there's a brachial plexus over there, too, where you've got a giant nerve bundle. So if everything up by the, you know, clavicle joint, all that stuff, all that tissue starts to get pissy, um, it's going to change the kinematics of how the clavicle functions and the scap and everything else. And then if you try to work through that and you start to, you know, continue to do a bunch of overhead work with everything pissed off, you're going to end up like me. Um, and getting to the point where you need to go see the doctor because you decided to work through it. And, uh, you know, I think a big part of it is, is the shoulder is so freaking complicated. I mean, look, Eric Cressy has built a career off of being the shoulder guy. Obviously he's brilliant and he knows a lot more about a lot of other stuff, but if you look at, well, first of all, you have to look at the population he works with. <laughs> I mean, these are million dollars throwing shoulders, multi-million dollar throwing shoulders. So there's a guy that gets into the weeds because he he has to and because he can. Um, I, you know, I think there are scenarios where that's that information is a little bit too overboard for like Gen Pop. But, you know, when you're dealing with the best throwers in the world, you need to be able to know every single nuance. But um, it just goes to show like the the shoulder complex is complex, pun intended. 
I smell what you're cooking. Uh, and I, and I love that joke myself. Um, I usually use it with the foot and ankle complex cause it's complex and, uh, same thing with the shoulder and, uh, you know, drawing that out, um, real quick to your point of important stuff that's behind and involved with the SC joint clavicle and stuff like that. Like there's some carotid arteries and really important nerve bundles and there's stuff uh, just behind that SC joint and uh, into your neck that are really, you don't want to go poking around in there. So don't, don't start smashing around on your SC joints and doing silly stuff. Uh, this is an area where you get a professional involved. You get a physical therapist, you get a, a manual therapist, you, you work with somebody that knows something about this joint. Yeah. And um, don't just jam and, a lacrosse ball in there and hope it goes well, please. Because <laughs> people do that. <laughs> I told ah, someone I, I told someone to foam roll their face once and they tried it. So you have to be careful with what advice you give. <laughs> I'm serious. Hey, I only did it once. <laughs> um just don't yeah. Don't so, foam, yeah, never mind. Anywho. Yeah, don't 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 mess with the SC joint and don't foam roll your face. Um and that's today's the, podcast. The SC joint follow out to the clavicle, the AC joint. Um, and again, a lot of people get a get a uh, AC joint that's barking at them, and it's really the SC joint. Where I ended up with some really irritated AC joints uh, was when I changed my grip on my military press. So this will sound like we're skipping way ahead in school, but this really matters. And we did an article, Fabio, Kathy Dooley, and I uh, did an article on Strong First talking about optimizing the grip for the military press. And it has to do with hand and wrist structure and how that influences how you're bearing that load as you go through that um, military press, especially with a kettlebell, where the center, the offset center of mass is really influencing the path of the press um, and how the mechanics and structure influences function, function influences structure. It's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. So that offset center of mass of the bell, if you are out of alignment with that, and not optimizing where that load is being carried, you're going to end up with some problems. And I did. Like I ended up with two pretty uh, barking AC joints. And what I had done is I had changed my grips to Fabio's grip on, on my military press. Well, my hand and wrist structure is completely different. You know, I'm very um, owner deviated. Um, it looks like I'm waving all the time, right? So uh, waving's easy for me. Um, and I have a thumb that's very high in my palm. Fabio's on the other end of the spectrum. He's radial deviated with a thumb that's super low in his palm. Our two grips are super different. And yeah. so I tried his grip, pissed off my shoulders, uh, went back to my own grip, much happier shoulders. And um, it, it's really good now to be able to kind of have that conversation. Here I was, you know, close to 20 years down the road of being a kettlebell practitioner and just realizing, hey, there's two three really different wrists and, and hand structures that really start to influence how you're going to do that military press. So check out that article um, because as you're going through the mechanics of the press, you know, we've talked about the SC joint, AC joint, scapula, what's happening in the glenoid. Um, you, we got to talk scapula thoracic rhythm because once you're past 30 degrees of abduction, you start getting into a two to one scapula thoracic rhythm. Uh, meaning every uh, two degrees of shoulder abduction that occurs, there's a degree of scapular rotation. And so that scapular rotation, uh, upward rotation that has to happen. And I, I want you to make a little cup with your hand and now take your other fist and put it in that cup, right? That's your glenoid. So... If you think of your shoulder being down at about 30 degrees or the angle of the fist hand being down about 30 degrees, and you start to raise that, if you're going to keep that fist balanced in the cup, that scapula, that glenoid, which is part of the scapula, has to upward rotate. And um, sometimes when people hear the cue shoulder packing, they start to get in the way of that natural scapular thoracic rhythm. They're thinking down and back and they're trying to hold their shoulders down and back. Well, yes-ish, but you can't <laughs> prevent that upward rotation because you have to keep that the head of the humerus uh, balanced in that uh, glenoid. 
if the upward rotation of the scapula stops and the motion of the humerus continues, you are going to bang the humerus into the AC joint. <clears throat> so that's the pure mechanical side of things. Now we start to talk about the rotator cuff and the musculature that's involved. And the fact that the rotator cuff has to fire first, uh, producing a force coupling mechanism at the glenohumeral joint that uh, only takes 20 to 30% maximum voluntary contraction of the musculature of that rotator cuff in order to produce a stable joint. That's a really low level of activation. Because if you think about it, rotator cuff muscles, itty bitty, up against the pec, the lat, the delt, some big old honking muscles, they're never going to win if they don't fire first. So if that rotator cuff force coupling mechanism does not happen in the right sequence, we run into problems. And so to your point of the short, the, the uh, shoulder complex, it's complex. And then we get a lot of questions on, well, what's the role of the lat? You guys talk about pressing from your lat. Your lat doesn't press. Well, as soon as you start pressing and you start moving that bell up, the anterior containment for your shoulder is the lat. It's an internal rotator. It, it About 20% of the population doesn't have the connection of the lat to the inferior angle of the scapula anymore, but it's still influencing scapular mechanics because of the way it crosses through that area. And you, you can draw some fascial lines, you can whatever, you know, whatever your uh, particular bowl of soup is, you, you go with that. But the lat significantly influences what's happening uh, from an overhead pressing uh, standpoint. Um, so that was kind of a brain dump and maybe you hear a little excitement in my voice as we go through this, because this is actually, I just think it's super cool, everything that's happening. And then in the end, uh, all I want you to think about is shoving your elbow under the weight and pressing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, again, it's one of those things. And I think you did a, a really nice job outlining sort of the, the key points, right. Of, of, from a functional standpoint, what you need to look for, because really, um, what it boils down to is, um, you know, from a competency standpoint, can you get into the right positions from a mobility standpoint to press in a fashion that will result in a positive adaptation and not a negative compensation? And I know we can use those words sort of interchangeably, but, um, you know, I think the big thing is, can you get your hand, can you get overhead without, you know, throwing your low back or your neck under the bus type scenario? And, you know, it's a very, very, you know, shoulder flexion is is sort of the one thing that I, I think people look at a lot when it comes to um, analyzing how the shoulder works and, uh, you know, trying to optimize pressing or, or overhead work in general. So, um, you know, I, I think the first thing is, can you get there, right? Can you get overhead? Um, I think the second thing is, is um, you know, can you stabilize overhead? And I think the last thing is, can you dynamically move a load from the start position, the clean, which we're going to talk about here in a second, and then the lockout, which is the overhead position. And um, here's the scoop. Getting a kettlebell overhead via a snatch is very different than getting a kettlebell overhead via a press. They're still overhead, but there's very, very different ways to get there. And for some people, going overhead in a getup or a snatch may be awesome for them, but pressing may not. So there's, there's a lot of things to look into because, you know, you're still landing at the, uh, the similar destination, but the way that you get there is going to be different. So, um, you know, I think we, we need to start thinking about a lot of these different exercises, specifically with the shoulder. We need to think about it like we would the deadlift or a squat. We always talk about all these different squat variations. We've got low bar, we've got high bar, we've got zercher, we've got all this other stuff. And the same thing with deadlifts. You've got narrow stance, sumo, conventional, um, traditional sumo, and then you've got all your different grips guys. It's the same thing. For an overhead press, it's just a lot harder to see because the shape and the posture of the individual going overhead, you're not going to see a huge, huge difference in someone's overhead pressing groove at first. Now, when you start to dig a little bit deeper and you can start to see, all right, so once they clean, where do they land with their clean? And what does their groove look like on the way up? How much elbow flare happens? And when does the elbow flare happen? I think there's a bunch of things that you need to pay attention to, but it's not as easy to spot as like, what's the difference between a conventional deadlift or sumo deadlift? Like you look at it and you go, yeah, they're very, very different, but to the untrained eye going overhead and just, you know, doing a press overhead, um, it's not going to look that different until you have a trained eye. And I think that's a big part of overhead pressing and going overhead that it it's going to look different and it should look different because we are different. 
So straight arm versus bent arm techniques. And this is this is where you were headed with the, the, the conversation of get-ups and snatches being great for some people. Because once you're overhead, you're in a straight, you're already in a straight arm position versus a bent arm technique where you're coming from that rack position and having to push through that middle, let's call it the middle two thirds of the, of the overhead position. First little bit out of the rack, almost nobody has a problem there. Lockout almost, you know, if you have a problem at lockout, you already know you have a problem at lockout. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where most people struggle in their press is that middle two thirds of the press where you are the mechanics of what's happening at the scapula and the shoulder and the musculature is, is, is so important. And there's some, there's some easy ways to cue somebody into doing this better. Um, number one, uh, bottoms up press. The bottoms up press succeeds because the weight is stacked over your elbow. Um, and if you don't follow the correct groove, if the elbow starts to go a little fast, if you get out of sequence, bell's not going to stay upside down. Um, it's going to come down. So the bottoms up press is probably one of the best ways to start getting somebody um, pressing well and understanding what their path is. The other is to understand the negative. And at Strong First, and one of the things that we hammer on almost every exercise that we teach is the active negative. So if you're in tall kneeling underneath the power rack and you have a band overhead in your perfect lockout position and you practice pulling that hand back down to the uh, perfect rack position, which we're going to talk about here in a second, um, then you're going to start to understand that active negative, how the lat is loading the shoulder for the next rep. And that path informs the path of your active negative informs the path of your concentric. And so it, if you spend a little bit of time with some bottoms up press and some active negative, I think you end up in a much better place uh, for your press. But it all comes together in the rack position. And there's a few mistakes that people make there. And it's usually two ends of the spectrum. It They're too far across the chest when they finish their clean. Or they're trying to be too vertical with the forearm uh, at the finish of their clean. Depending on the weight bell, um, being more vertical, uh, if I have to choose, I will choose more vertical versus more tilted in up to a point because now as we start to get with a larger bell and the center mass gets further away from my elbow, I have to have some tilt in at my forearm to keep the center mass of the bell stacked over my elbow. With a For me, with like a 40 kilo bell, if I have my forearm too vertical, it's going to crank my shoulder into a really bad position, what arm wrestlers would call the broken arm position. And that name alone should give you the idea that you don't want to be there, right? You don't want that, that sort of load uh, happening through your, through your shoulder. So perfecting your clean is key to perfecting your press. And how you start out of that rack position is going to determine a lot of your uh, success in pressing. That's impressive knowledge. Sorry. That, that was honestly, man, my dad joke game has been uh, pretty good lately. So anyways, um, solid. So one thing that you said that uh, kind of jumped out at me is positioning of the forearm. And this is why a lot of people have a tough time making the jump from a smaller bell to a larger bell because in like a deadlift, the mechanics hopefully look very, very similar if you're if you're doing a, a lightish deadlift versus a, you know, let's say like if you're doing a a, a triple for five rep, I mean, yeah, a triple uh for you know at 80% versus a, a double at 90, they're probably gonna look similar. But if you're doing, you know, singles on one day and with kettlebells, like let's say you're doing load wavering, um, and then another day you're doing uh, you know let's say just a bunch of fives at like 60% or 70% or whatever, the angle of the forearm is going to change based off of the load. So therefore your technique is going to be slightly different and you have to understand how to handle and manipulate those joint angles just slightly. Because if you try to replicate the identical press groove 
that you do with a light kettlebell and then you grab a really, really heavy one, you're going to find yourself frustrated because like Brett said, the offset load is, is, uh, is really going to change how things function. It's the same thing overhead. You know, a lot of people, when they go overhead, they just think, well, I have to get my bicep, my bicep behind my ear. Well, do you really need to be behind your ear with that kettlebell? Because once that kettlebell's on the backside of the forearm, now the load is actually not stacked over your pelvis. It's actually stepped, it's stacked behind you. And it's very, very different mechanics. So um, I, I think from an overhead position, I want people to really think about looking at the, the kettlebell stacked over the pelvis and not just trying to get the bicep in line or behind the ear because they're two different destinations. And if you are a hypermobile individual that goes to the overhead and you are already biasing it so far back in deflection that it's actually going past the midline of your body, you don't have stability there, man, that, that kettlebell could keep on going and, and you could result in, you know, a shoulder injury. It happened to my wife uh, a long time ago. She was, you know, pretty hypermobile. And, uh, and, and I don't know if this is, this was definitely before we, we had children and hypermobility happens when you have children as well, but she just had a kettlebell overhead, wasn't paying attention. It was a 16 kilo overhead and she lost it and she kept on holding onto it and she dislocated her shoulder. And, uh, so I'm just telling you that because you have to be smart when you go overhead. And I think a lot of people, when they snatch, they'll, now this is a, a technique and this is a, 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 before I tell you about this, I just need you to understand this is not how everybody should do it. This is just an option. Some people can go overhead and they'll kind of, they'll let the kettlebell set back and they'll push their head forward just to achieve a stacked position, but make sure you're not going so far overhead that it goes behind you because it's not the overhead position with a barbell and the overhead position with a kettlebell is going to be very, very different based off of the grip and how wide you can go with a barbell. You can go really, really wide and, and go into that sort of, it's almost like a horizontal abduction position. Um, and when you go overhead, it's just, it's very, the way that you, you center the bar over the pelvis is very, very different because you have to have a very, very wide grip. So the demands of a barbell when going overhead aren't the same as going overhead with a kettlebell. And I would actually argue that, actually, I'm not even gonna argue, I know it's true. Getting two kettlebells in the lockout position is way exponentially harder than getting a barbell locked out in the overhead position. So just because you have mobility to do like, uh, maybe a snatch with a barbell, doesn't mean you're gonna have this, the mobility to do a clean and jerk or to even get two kettlebells overhead if you're gonna do a double press because it's just different. And I wanted to talk about that and, and really, I guess, uh, discuss this specifically on this episode because it's just different. And those are those things you have to consider when you're teaching, right? So, you know, kind of a little bit of a, a different rant, but um, I think it's important stuff. Definitely. And I think uh, understanding that the offset center of mass of the kettlebell up to a certain point is very assistive in achieving a good overhead position but you cross a threshold where it goes from being assistive to being challenging mm -hmm. to that press and to that overhead position. So for me, um, that's ballpark, the 36 kilo. Um, the, my press is different up to the 32 than it is from 36 and beyond. And that's just because of that center of mass changes to a, to a degree uh, that it goes from assistive to challenging. Um, so definitely keep that in mind way and where Mike was, was, you know, directing things there of, of thinking about where the center of mass of that bell is, you mm -hmm. want the center of mass of that bell. It can be slightly behind your shoulder, but that's slightly behind your shoulder and uh, picture in mind again, what's holding the kettlebell, the ground, you're trying to align your structure so that it settles through your structure in the most efficient way. Um, you can let that go too far back and really run into some problems to Mike's point. Um, and then if we compare this with uh, the, the double kettlebell press, the interesting thing from a teaching standpoint is the double kettlebell clean and the double kettlebell press are actually way easier to learn. They, they just are. And I don't have a real scientific explanation other than both arms are doing the same thing at the same time. So the inner limb response is really strong. Um, and you got maybe a couple things like that happening. Um, but double, double clean, double press way easier from a technique standpoint because the body just kind of figures it out. However, just like single leg stance versus uh, symmetrical stance, when you trap your hips between your feet, life is different. When you trap your shoulders be between two kettlebells at the same time, 
it's different. The amount of T-spine extension that you need, the amount of scapular control that you need, your mobility requirements go through the roof. It's a really different press. Um, I think it's a great press. Um, and I, I wanted to highlight here real quick, you know, Jeff Newbert has had a ton of success putting programs out there that focus on clean and press and getting some really good results with, with folks with real minimal programs and, and a focus towards the clean and press. So it's a, it's a dynamic uh, whole body drill that really has some great benefit. Um, but the, you know, double bell press, very different from single bell press. Single bell press is a lot more technique, but a lot more forgiving uh, towards the mobility problems and things that typically bring to the overhead position. So most everybody we start with kettlebells is going to start with a single bell. So that's just the way it is. Um, so uh, two, uh, I want to give an, a pressing analogy um, and then something to watch out for coming out of the rack. Um, my favorite pressing analogy is the booster rocket analogy. So if you picture a booster rocket attached to the bottom of your elbow in the rack position, if you tilt that forearm too far in and that booster rocket goes off, it's going to go off to the other side and it, it's nasty. If, if the elbow gets ahead of the fist a little bit and the booster rocket goes off, you're probably going to punch yourself in the face. If you manage to get past probably 45, 50 degrees of, of this combined shoulder flexion abduction and the fist is inside the elbow and the booster rocket goes off, it's going to look like you're trying to cross your arm over your head. The what, what you want to think about is when that booster rocket goes off, it is taking the payload to space through that vertical forearm, which means a couple of things. As you press, the bell in your arm will be a humorous length away from your body. So it's not super tight and trying to keep the bell as close to us as possible. It's respecting the length of that humerus and knowing that it's going to be a humorous length away from us. And when we try to short that distance by having the fist inside the elbow, what we end up doing is a really nasty shoulder internal rotation, weird thing. Uh, and then a little tricep extension to, to finish the press with. It's, it's not strong and it's not going to be good for your shoulder. So we want that. Um, and coming back to the rack position, as you initiate the press out of the rack, your goal is get that forearm vertical, get that booster rocket, taking that payload to space let your shoulder have that full upward rotation um, and work through that. Because what the big mistake that happens is what people will find is when they come from a position in the rack where they're probably too much across the chest and then they start the press, they end up flipping or rolling the, the kettlebell behind them. And it wants to keep rolling um, over, over the fist, um, it's a really, it's not a strong position at all. So you want to avoid this quick flip into the press position because that's going to start the kettlebell rotating, um, and, and wanting to come out of the rack position, not, it's just bad. Don't do it. Um, versus initiating by shoving your elbow underneath the bell and allowing the booster rocket to take it to space. So I think that'll help a lot of people. Um, and then last thing, then I'll turn it over to Mike. Um, video yourself pressing. Just because the bell ended up overhead, um, just because the bell ended up overhead, um, it doesn't mean you did it right. <laughs> and so what we see a lot of times, and I see this all the time, beast tamer attempts and half body weight press attempts at certs and things like that, is somebody comes up into the rack, they drop the elbow, and then they go to press. If there's downward movement before the press, it doesn't count. Now, look, you're not testing for beast tamer or half body weight press or you know whatever, and you want to use a little shotgun start. Okay, that's fine. You, you be you. But when you step up in a judged situation, you need to make sure you're following the rules. So what we want is you finish the clean with the lat loaded. You don't finish the clean and then try to load the lat because that's usually what the, the excuse people will make for having that downward movement before they start the press is, uh, well, I'm, I'm just loading my lat. Well, you should have done that during your press. Um, so, and then um, leg action. 
there's a, and I find, I've found this for myself. I go back and, you know, I don't like film a bunch of sets during a day and then pick the best one to put on social media. I just film a set and then put the phone away because I hate, um, I hate having to deal with my phone when I'm, when I'm training. Um, but there's, day, there's days where I go to, you know, trim that video a little bit and put it up there. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> guess I missed that, a uh, little bit of leg action that was in there. And, but filming yourself and being, you know, honest about what you're seeing, have a friend review it, get, get outside eyes on it. Um, yeah, just a, again, a little brained up on some overhead stuff that I see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the one thing that I want to sort of throw in there is, you know, what's happening with the lower body because hip position, super important when it comes to going overhead. And, uh, you know, I think the one thing we need to, uh, discuss is, what is the difference between hip extension and lumbar extension? And why is this important? Well, because when you're pressing a kettlebell overhead, ideally what you do is you, you clean the kettlebell and you lock out. And when you finish that lockout, right, you're in a plank, but you're fully extending your hips. Now it's almost going to be as if the hip, your hips are in front of the rest of your body. And in a sense, they will be, but that doesn't mean your body's not in a straight line. You still want to maintain the integrity of that extended hip position. And then when you go, when you go overhead, you want to make sure that you're minimizing, um, spinal movement. So as you go overhead, basically what's going to want to happen is you're probably going to want to go into a little bit more global extension of the spine to get the kettlebell overhead. But the problem is that could turn into like a glorified, uh, you know, mil uh, glorified, um, like incline press where, you know, you start and you continue to side bend or you continue to extend backwards and you go into this sort of gross, uh, lumbar, uh, thoracic flexion type scenario. So when you do clean, you want to clean in the plank, you want to, you know, land in a nice tall plank position, but with your hips finished. Okay. And we can get about 20 degrees of hip extension in a bilateral position. And a great way to do that is if you stand up, and this is actually part of the SFMA and the uh, top tier of the SFMA, which is the multi-segmental extension, is if you can stand up and your ASIS basically can clear where your toes are in front of your foot, that shows us that you have adequate uh, adequate hip extension bilaterally in the standing position. Okay. Now that doesn't guarantee that you can maintain that position as you go overhead. It just shows us that you can get there. So as you go ahead and clean that kettlebell, you want to land and it's almost going to feel like your hips are in front of you. And that hip extension is a way that you can bring your pelvis slightly forward. And now you are still aligning the kettlebell, the area of mass over the pelvis. And that's why you can actually get a little bit more hip extension. If you get, if you combine really quality hip extension with good thoracic extension, when you go to go overhead, like literally your face is not going to get in the way <laughs> because when you go to go overhead, you've already sort of cleaned it up because you've already started in hip extension. So I think it's, you know, it's a little bit easier to probably see, but um, I think it's important because if you, if you try to clean and you can't finish your hips and you're already in sort of a, maybe even like a soft knee position or a, a position where you just can't get stacked and you're at end range of your sort of your lumbar spine, when you go to press overhead, you're already biased towards so much extension that you're probably going to start banging into stuff. So when you, uh, when you clean, I think the key here is guys is pay attention to your hips, pay attention to fully extending both hips, getting that kettlebell vertically loaded. And then, you know, learning how to land again, like Brett was talking about earlier, making sure that you're landing that clean boom, right in that sort of, that sort of position where you're already loading the lat at the same time. It, you know, you don't want to spend all day there and then boom, you zip up, get your breathing down and then you go overhead, hit your active negative and rinse and repeat. And, and I think it's important to understand that position. And the same thing goes, if you're going heavy and you're doing a heavy single, you'll actually see some people they'll clean and they'll do a slight little hip shift. What is the purpose of the hip shift? The purpose of the hip shift is to get the pelvis underneath the bell. And that's more advantageous when you can stack your joints. Cause remember what Brett said, when you're going overhead, your body or the ground is supporting the load, not just the shoulder. And the hip shift is not a bad strategy when you're going a little bit heavier. 100%. So best place to feel the hip extension that Mike's talking about, tall kneeling. Uh, in the tall kneeling position, uh, and you press, do military presses from the tall kneeling position, obviously you'll be cheat cleaning the bell uh, in, into the rack. But that's where you're going to feel that ability to bring the hips through and how that supports uh, the press. Uh, the place to feel the hip shift, uh, half kneeling press. 
And, uh, you know, if you don't have Fabio's victorious uh, military press video, um, you should probably get Fabio's victorious military pressing video <laughs> if you want to take a deeper dive uh, down this. And uh, again, somebody that's spent a good bit of time putting weights overhead and has some really good perspective on uh, on on doing this. Um, last things, uh, breathing and tension. Um, what I do for my presses now is I inhale throughout the clean. So I'm not exhaling at the hips when the hips finish and then having to inhale again before I start my press. I inhale throughout the clean so that once I end up in the rack position, I'm loaded. I know I'm ready to press. And people that I've gotten to kind of embrace this, it's a, a two to four minimum kilo increase uh, in their press and just a, a way more solid starting position. So you'll hear the, the breathing sequence that I use is to And that's one press, right? So it's inhale throughout the clean. I have a breath hold or pressurization, a little bit of a, a silent grunt to start the press. And that's going to give me a really strong trigger to start my press with. I've got an exhale, probably last half to top third of the motion. Once I've established the overhead position, now my active negative comes with an inhale, which loads me for the next press. Uh, that is a really strong breathing sequence uh, for your military press, and it's it's gonna it's gonna add pounds and kilos to your to your press. Um, when you have to spend time in the rack, exhale, try to inhale again, and try to set the tension. It's just you're just not being. Uh, the, the most efficient that you could be uh, in, in creating that. So um, yeah, I think we've actually covered a lot of stuff about the clean and press. We did cover quite a bit for sure. Um, and, and honestly, I think the last thing um, patience and we can talk about, you know, programming, uh, et cetera. But I think the big thing is, look, if you have a specific goal to take your time, don't try to, don't try to rush it. Um, I've seen so many people and, and this is more, you know, for, for the kettlebell certs, but with with strong first you have to hit if you're a male a half body weight press and uh, a lot of people rush that process and then they go in and then they miss it and they wondered why well it's because you just took your level one and you got so excited that you want to take your level two three months later which hey i'm not discouraging that but listen you, you got to put your time in because you're not going to magically show up with a half body weight press i've never seen it or you can't depend on going um I'm just going to train it and hope I can get it on testing day. Yeah, it's not going to happen as well. So um, I think, you know, if you want to good at if you want to get good at pressing, you have to press a lot. But I think you have to be patient, and uh, I you have to see how your body responds to the load and uh, how it responds to the groove, and you just have to practice because light pressing a light kettlebell is fairly easy. Pressing a heavy kettlebell is super hard, and um, you know I, I think there's a lot to learn by just going out there and. And just doing it, but also being smart and how you apply this and how you attack, uh, you know, this lift in general. But um, any other words of wisdom? Yeah, two ah, things there. Um, a four to eight kilo increase in your military press, kettlebell, single kettlebell military press, can be a journey. Yeah. Don't think you're four kilos away and you're going to set up a six-week program and get there. Um, you might. Granted, you might not. And so the the increase in volume, load, and stress can easily run into some shoulder problems because you're thinking, well, I'm only eight kilos away. You know, I've only got to go from the 32 to the 40 or only got to go from the 36 to the 40. Um, that can be a journey. Um, and everybody hits those. And again, it, it has to do with the offset center of mass, the mechanics, and just these cut points where the, the lift changes a little bit. Uh, when you when you get into these really heavy presses, and the other thing is the and Mike kind of alluded to it that uh, the the light to medium pressing volume, and it works for some people, it really does. But what I see a lot of people end up with is they get really good at pressing that light to medium weight for uh, a lot of uh, volume, and they're used to doing it with so much speed that 
when they get under a heavy load and now you got to have a good first gear to really grind through and and hold the strength through the press they're not where they need to be and so you need to know what kind of presser you are i've always needed to press heavy in order to press heavy it's it's not necessarily been the conversation for me that i could press a lot to press a lot it was i needed to press heavy enough in order to press heavy and so that that little change in technique where the speed and acceleration happens at a light to medium weight versus how that's going to look and feel at a heavier weight is something you need to have experience with and mike mike said this time the reason i'm pressing so well right right now is i've pressed a lot over the last two two and a half years but i've been pressing uh, initially it was the 24 and 32 then it was the 32 and a little 36 then it was the 32 with a 36 and a little bit of 40 now it's a lot of 36 and 40 um and so it's just been this nice progressive like i i pick up the 32 right now feels like a 24 i pick up a 36 feels like a 32 um it it feels light um and it's the weights moving well the 40 starting to feel like a 36 um more like a 38 right now uh so but that's just time it's just time and repetition and different volumes and um yeah there's there's a a lifetime to be spent uh, just like with the swing and so many of our other lifts if you just knuckle down and enjoy the journey it's a pretty good one Absolutely. So, well, that covers it for uh, today's podcast. Um, you know, the clean and press, fantastic exercise. Um, can get a ton of mileage out of this exercise alone if you know how to do it correctly and programmed correctly. So, um, anyways, we appreciate everybody listening today. Uh, if you could do us a huge favor, give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mike. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.